is correct. Hi, everyone. I'm Bill Coffin, and welcome to Moments of Truth, the show about my favorite moments from my favorite things. And today, we'll be discussing a movie that reminded us that in space, no one can hear you scream, Alien. Now, for those of you who haven't seen Alien, the story is set a few hundred years into the future, and a commercial cargo tug, the Nostromo, is returning to Earth with a huge mining payload in tow. Its crew is Captain Dallas, Executive Officer Kane, Warrant Officer Ripley, Science Officer Ash, Navigator Lambert, and Engineers Parker and Brett. And they're all awakened from suspended animation about halfway home when the ship's computer, Mother, detects what might be an alien transmission from a nearby planetoid. Now, company rules state that all unidentified transmissions must be investigated. So the crew sets down on this mysterious world, whereupon they discover the remains of an alien derelict ship and a cargo hold full of mysterious xenomorph eggs. One hatches and projects its contents onto Kane's face, prompting an emergency return to the Nostromo in an attempt to save Kane and figure out just what the hell is going on here. Very soon, the entire crew realizes just how much trouble they're really in as they learn that the only thing scarier than being trapped in a cage with the monster is knowing that somebody out there is kind of rooting for the monster to win. This movie launched a pretty substantial franchise for itself, but apart from its direct sequel, Aliens, a movie that will receive its own episode on this podcast, to be sure, none of its various sequels, spinoffs, and crossovers ever really captured that dark magic that made this movie such an instant classic. And while that's a shame, it's also understandable. A movie this different, this effective, this perfect, it's all those things because it captures something unique and was itself uniquely well executed. Aliens is a groundbreaking science fiction movie. It's also a groundbreaking horror movie. And in its own way, it's a deeply insightful movie about the struggles of labor versus management, the disposability of people, and the banality of evil. I am so excited to talk about this movie. <laughs> I, just, I just love it. It's a movie I never grow tired of watching. It's something I have found endlessly inspiring over the years. And it's not just one of the scariest movies I've ever seen, but it exemplifies why I like the whole horror genre so much, even though I really don't like being scared. Uh, with me today is Chief Technical Officer Chris Crenshaw, Xeno Diplomacy Officer Joe Pace, and Waylon Yutani Chief Marketing Officer Tom Hespos. Everyone, welcome. Howdy, Bill. Thanks for having me, Bill. <laughs> so um, I'm going to start off tonight talking about my moment of truth because it's probably the scene of the movie that is most known by everybody, it's the, or it's the scene for which the movie is best known. It's the infamous chestburster scene. The crew is about to go back to sleep after Kane has apparently survived his encounter with the facehugger. As the conversation continues, Kane appears to start having some difficulty over dinner. He's choking, can't figure out what's going on. He goes into convulsions, and before we know it, this larval xenomorph dramatically breaches out of Kane's chest cavity in a fountain of blood, killing poor Kane immediately. And then as the xenomorph gives this tiny roar at everyone in the room, and then skitters away while the shocked crew stares slack-jawed in horror. This is such an iconic horror scene, and anybody who's seen it, you're already replaying it in your head. It's just so, so memorable. And there's a reason why I think this is rated one of the scariest scenes ever filmed. I mean, there's no warning to it. There's no music. There's really not even a jump scare to it. You're just watching something horrible unfold with no way to stop it. I don't think the scene has a particularly deeper meaning per se for me, at least not to me. For me, it's all about visceral execution, if you'll pardon the pun. This is just, this is, I love how the scene unfolds. I love what it does to you as a viewer. And there's a lot that make the scene so extraordinarily well done. And the reason why I don't think there's ever been a single horror scene that's quite matched this frame for frame is in terms of effectiveness. 
one of the things is that how the actors aren't fully acting in the scene. There's a lot of background stories of how the scene was actually filmed. And without getting too much into details, the reality is that when you're seeing the chest burster come out, the actors, a lot of their reaction is genuine. They knew the scene was being filmed. They weren't quite sure what they're in for. And they were legitimately freaked out and, and completely going nuts as, as this is all happening. A couple of the actors, one of them fainted. The other one just kind of barricaded in his room for a while afterwards. And he was so, he was just so wigged out. You can't fake that. I mean, there's a reality to it that's just so visceral and it translates across the screen. You feel it too. The other reason why I love this scene so much is, and I'm sure we'll get into this, is that the cast of characters in the story, there aren't a lot of really truly bad people in the crew, but a lot of them aren't necessarily great people either. But Kane is probably one of the better ones. And so to see him exit the story so quickly is a great way to let you know that maybe one of the guys who could have solved the problems in the story, you can't rely on him, he's out. But there's also a lot of other great stuff in here as well. You know, when the Xenomorph bursts forth, Parker immediately gets ready to, to kill this creature at the one moment when it's actually defenseless. And Ash, the science officer, you know, intervenes. And it's a great foreshadowing of that character's outlook on things, his view towards the xenomorph, and more importantly, who is Ash really serving? Is he serving the crew? Is he serving somebody outside of the ship? And I guess the other thing about that scene that I just love so much is something it just evokes for me one of my longstanding issues with the movie, which is that if Jonesy the cat had just been there and did its damn job as a cat, killing creatures smaller than it, it would have saved innumerable lives. But where was the cat? Not where you needed it. Well, what cat ever does its job, Bill? That's what I'd like to ask you. Well, what, what, what? <laughs> He's a cat. He's not a flirkin. He's not going to eat it. I mean, like... Look, it's vermin at that point. I am telling you right now, I have friends. I have a friend with a cat that actually would go after turkeys, okay? If a cat wants to kill something, it's gonna kill it. The truth is, Jonesy couldn't be bothered to actually get off its ass and do anything. As cinematic animals go, I've got a very low opinion of Jonesy the cat. I really, really do. And I'm just gonna, not everybody's gonna like it. There are like, gonna be a lot of cat fans out there are gonna hate me for saying this, I get it. I'm just saying Jonesy had one job to do and watching characters die in front of him was probably not the job, but you know, a cat's gonna cat. So, so there you have I, it. I agree with you, That's, man. Cats are just uh, I'm on your side. That's why I'm a dog guy. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to get some thoughts on what your reactions were when you first saw the chestburster scene. Cause I remember, all right, I was only nine the movie came out. So I had to wait a few years to see it. But I remember the scene was one of the scenes that people who had never even seen the movie were talking about. It was yeah. such a cultural moment. People were so collectively traumatized by it. Joe? My introduction to that scene was not in this movie. It was in Spaceballs. It <laughs> uh, was the first time I ever saw this scene was when it was parodied. And so when eventually I did get a chance to see this, all I can see is the creature tap dancing. When it skitters off, that's the indelible memory I have it is of it being vaguely comic. Um, and so not having seen that before, it lost a little bit of the shock value and the scariness of it for me. So, but I, I would be interested to hear from the guys who presumably saw this without having that kind of baggage brought to the table. Joe, you don't look that young. <laughs> <laughs> it's oh, the hair. Oh, man. <laughs> Sorry. Says the, yeah. Says the guy with the joust shirt on. Uh, yeah, I, I wore this shirt literally because this was the age I was when I saw the movie. I was about 13. I saw it on uh, VHS or cable at my uncle's house. I would spend weeks during the summer with my, my two uncles. Uh, I mean, it, it was my first introduction to horror, really. I think I had seen like bits of poltergeists and stuff like that, maybe Jaws before this, but oof, this movie hit me hard. And 
and I'll tell you the one moment that did affect me the most, Bill, is in this scene. It's it's that beat of silence, and then and the first splash of blood. Oh, oh, <laughs> really? Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's it's so harsh. One of the details from that scene that really I just can't get on my head is Veronica Cartwright going, "Oh God, oh, oh God!" Like, and she's it's this anguished wail, you know, as she as she's she doesn't know what to do and. I think everybody has seen something so outside the context of normal that they, they have been just unable to react. And you know, in a horror movie, a lot of the action is predicated on characters not doing the smart thing in the moment where it matters or just making you know, colossally dumb choices. But one of the things I loved about this scene is that it, the way it's carried out with so little warning, it catches everybody, including the audience, so off guard that when everybody else is just standing there unable to move, you get it. It doesn't feel like an artifice by the story to just give the creature a chance to get away while it can. You understand like why these people would be so just frozen in fear and just unable to do anything. Really, it's one of the few times when that kind of reaction really works for me. I never really stop to go, why don't these guys do X or Y? This scene really kind of set for me the stakes of, okay, these guys are simply doing the best they can. They're probably not the best suited for dealing with an indestructible xenomorph in their ship, but really who is? And for the rest of the movie, I just, every time they walk into a bad place, I'm like, well, yeah, because these guys are fated. They're doomed. They have no choice but to die horribly. <laughs> you know, and the scene set such a great level of expectations for me. It got me super tense and never let me go from, from then on. Like I was just a bundle of nerves until the very final frame that scene did so much to put me there oh yeah i had heard enough about the movie ahead of time that by the time we rented it on vhs we knew that scene was coming we used to have this group that used to sit in the back of the school bus and probably a bunch of future fangoria subscribers but you know like we just all talk about the gory <laughs> stuff we saw in movies oh man did you see orca the killer whale man it bit her leg right off you know that kind of stuff like in the back of the bus yeah everybody would always talk about the chest burster scene from alien so i had a few years of having to listen to that before uh, you know i rented the movie with some friends and we knew that scene was coming you're right bill in that the tension stays with you throughout that movie it's agonizing to, to keep up with it sometimes. Yeah. Is this horror? Is it science fiction? Is it sort of a crossover between the two? I don't know what is required for something to be considered yeah. a horror film. It's both. I, I would say that this is a, a real true kind of cross-genre movie. It is a science fiction film. It is a horror film. It stands equally either place and really successfully mashes them up together. And we've seen a lot of other movies try to mash up genres and they do it with varying degrees of success. But this one really, it succeeds very well as a science fiction movie. It succeeds very well as a horror movie. And it's the kind of thing like, if you could imagine somehow this movie being bifurcated, you took the xenomorph out of the story somehow, just focused on these poor space truckers trying to get home, there could have been a really good movie made just about that. you know. And yeah. there's enough of a science fiction grounding there to make it work. And likewise, you can take the xenomorph and put it in a different scenario. And they have done that in other movies, other follow-ups to the front, you know, to this one. They haven't worked as well, but there's enough to the xenomorph that carried out with the skill that Ridley Scott carried it out. He could have put the xenomorph on just on planet Earth during the modern day. Predator. <laughs> a, de a demon come to get Kitty Pride in the X-Mansion. <laughs> yeah, right. The thing about science fiction that makes it so successful, I think, to cross over is that it's not really a thematic genre. It, it has more to do with setting than it has to do with themes. You know, where Star Trek was a Western 
in a science fiction setting. You know, here you take horror in a science fiction setting. We'll see later in the series, you could take a war movie and put it in a science fiction setting. So science fiction doesn't necessarily have thematic beats you need to hit. Yeah. What I noticed watching this, what struck me is it, it has horror beats narratively that it, that it hits. Yeah. That would be familiar to any viewer of a, of a horror movie. But at the same time, though, one of the things that I so dearly love about Alien is that a lot of the pacing of the movie and a lot of the beats, so to speak, you don't really see done to death in other horror movies necessarily. Like, like the pacing of it and the things they don't, like you can't really predict the movie the way you can predict a lot of other horror movies. Um, there are a lot of movies now I watch, I can almost count off a jump scare in three, two. You know, we've been kind of culturally programmed to accept it. But this movie, it got you in other ways. A masterfully done scene is when Dallas dies, right? He's going into the tubes to, to try to find the alien. And he's got this flamethrower. He's got this motion tracker. And they're tracking from afar. And they can see this, this little dot. Dallas is coming closer. Where is it? I don't know. Where is it? And they're, they're screaming futilely trying to get him to turn around. And, of course, it's too late. And Dallas makes he zigs and should have zagged. And he gets eaten. But that scene is done so well. You can see it coming. It's so horrifying because you can't stop it. And I think so much of what makes Alien such a really scary movie is the fact that you you know what's out there. It's just the notion of the inevitability of like, you can't stop what's coming. That's a longer term kind of kind of dread. It, it, there's nothing scarier than being trapped in a box or something that, that's going to kill you. In this movie, the box is awfully large and you're like, there is no box big enough <laughs> to be far enough away from the xenomorph. That's, that's the sense you get. I mean, this movie could have been set in a Dyson sphere and it still wouldn't have been enough room for, for our heroes to be far enough away from the xenomorph. I mean, it's, it's that scary. It's that relentless. Every time it pops up and takes care of somebody, it's done in this slow burn fashion. It doesn't just pop out and give you a lot of craziness. It's, like, it's actually like a very low key kind of soft pedaled execution each scene. And that makes it even scarier somehow. Like the fact that it's not just coming at you guns blazing, noise blaring, just all the typical trappings, for me, makes it a much more effective horror movie and a much more suspenseful movie as well. Yeah, the, the, the pacing is everything for this movie. And it's a reason to like it, to love it, in my case, yeah. or to not like it. Because I mean, there is there is a lot of narrative dead space, and yet that's what builds the tension. That's why it's not predictable. You're five minutes into the movie before anybody says a word. <laughs> Yeah. And or anything, it, ta it takes a full minute for the name of the movie to appear on the screen in the opening credits. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's just the way it approaches things. Yeah. I have some observations about Ridley Scott's filmmaking that at times it's indulgent to the point of self-reverential in its shots. And I can see how that works for people. I mean, there's a piece of music called Bolero that is a, a slow burning build that it begins so quietly and slowly and then builds and builds and builds and builds and it's really just the same rhythm and the same melody and it, and it builds and gets louder and gets more intense to the, and by the end it's pounding so much and your heart is beating and you're not quite sure where it came from and so i appreciate that from a filmmaking standpoint i might have made different editing choices but then i'm not a, a visionary director so <laughs> all of my uh, all of my favorite led zeppelin songs and pink floyd songs uh, follow your description joe oh there, there's absolutely value to it yeah yeah. For all my talk about just the scares of this movie and my favorite scary scenes, and there are a lot of them. Tom, I'd love to to hear what your moment of truth is because it, it touches oh. it touches on a, a scene that is a another one of my very favorite scenes of the movie. But you know, I'd love to get your take on this. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I gotta explain I think a little bit about my psyche before you know I tell you what my <laughs> moment of truth is. Right. Like 
if I, you know, if I had terrifying nightmares when I was, was a kid, it was um, things that are unrelenting. Whether you're getting chased by vampires or werewolves when you're, you know, 11 years old and you're having a bad dream, like the things that would always get me and stay with me were those things that were so unrelenting that they literally wore you out. Those were the most terrifying nightmares that I ever had. Alien with the scene that I chose, I mean, really started to resemble my nightmares and be truly terrifying to me was, you know, the scene where Ripley's putting the cat away back in the thing. And, you know, she's, she's successfully kicked this thing into space with the rest of the ship, blown it up or, you know, so she thinks, and she's getting undressed, getting ready to go into her little sleep chamber. She's flipping some switches for me, when I was watching this movie for the first time, like I actually caught it. Ooh, that smooth thing over there. Doesn't that look like the top of the aliens? Boom. And then the arm dropped. Oh man, this is like one of those unrelenting things that just never stops until it gets you. And that was when I felt the most terror in the entire movie. Just, you know, the shock that she has and then having to like step back and like get into the spacesuit very quietly. That was absolutely terrifying to me because it just reminded me so much of actual nightmares I had had. That scene gave me a freaking heart attack the first time I saw it. Cause you know, the arm comes down, I'm like, oh, so ready for it to just be in a lifeboat and get free of this whole thing. I was so ready for this ordeal to be over. And the arm comes out, so like I always jumped out of my skin. and. That got me so bad that I didn't stop to wonder, wait, why is the alien taking so long? Why does the alien just, you know, <laughs> just take and just pop out and give a swift kill? It's not just a matter of making it, drawing out an excruciatingly tense scene, right? When Ripley is whispering like, lucky, 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 and trying to get in the suit. And you're like, oh my God, she was three seconds from dead the entire time. It's so hard to watch. But there's something, something I get from that scene that really, for me, sort of deepens the whole story and the whole the whole xenomorph in particular is that that scene makes me think about ash's final monologue when they realize ash is an android they've knocked his head off they kind of bring him back to life and he's, yeah, he's sitting there just talking ian holm <laughs> it was so great in this and he's got milk dribbling out of his mouth as he's talking he kind of lays bare the truth of his role in all this and the company's role in all this nobody's really meant to get home they would rather have the alien than the crew back safely but Ash, at one point, starts talking about the reverence he has for the xenomorph, right? And just how much he respects it. It's such a pure, he expects its purity. The one phrase he uses is that it doesn't have delusions of morality, right? And I think about that when I watch the xenomorph in the lifeboat with Ripley, because the xenomorph isn't really stuck. I mean, for, for when I watch it, I don't see a creature that can't get to Ripley. I see a creature that's playing with its kill. It knows that it's in a very small thing. Ripley has nowhere to go, and it's going to get Ripley. It's just something, it's, it's taking the moment to enjoy it. You're seeing it take its time and play with its kill the way you might see a cat do it, right? Not Jonesy, because Jonesy can't be bothered, but you know, but like any other cat, right? Or, or like an orca with a seal. And I think what's interesting about that is that when we see a cat or an orca play with its food or something, I mean, you know, we don't really see them as evil for doing so, because like, well, a cat's going to be a cat, an orca's going to be an orca, you know? But we do recoil from it because that's not how most humans are really wired. It comes to having a choice to do harm or not, to take pleasure in the harming of others, to ignore the impulse to leave something alone for the sake of its well-being, or ignore a path where your benefit doesn't have to come at the cost of something else. These are all the cornerstones of why we're moral creatures, and these aren't delusions. Our morality is an evolutionary advantage for us, for humans. It helps us work together, right? It helps us succeed as a community. So to have Ash write that off it just betrays his android way of thinking. But at the same time, 
us having morality as an evolutionary factor, that means that the alien isn't really being evil. It's just being what it is. And what it is is this thing that can play with us the way a cat would play with a mouse. And that makes it so much scarier to me. That really, it really confirms that, yeah, you can't bargain with it. You can't distract it. You can't get it off its course. It is as inevitable as gravity. It's going to find you and do terrible things to your body and leave you behind in a bloody puddle. Bill, I, I, I do think maybe you're uh, begging the question of whether humans are moral. I mean, in the idiom of this movie, that is highly questionable. He knows that he was programmed to bring back whatever he found at potential expense of the crew's lives and he knows why he sees you know morality as pretension why would i be programmed this way if that's what they really thought the thing with ash though is that all he sees of human morality is what the company's asked him to do and the company's asked him to do something deeply immoral yeah so so ash is not a perfectly objective observer of morality I, I mean i wouldn't go to him for philosopher on the mountain type questions i really <laughs> I, I, I really wouldn't you know, he's kind of designed for a very specific thing you know but one can hardly blame ash he's been sent to do his thing by some people who are probably you could say they're definitely more evil than the alien because the alien doesn't have any choice in what it does right the alien just is right. it, it is it is what it is the company has a choice they they knowingly make you know really really awful awful decisions jury's very much out on whether <laughs> we are more of us are moral than immoral and i'm certainly in no position to say which which is which but free agents yeah yeah, yeah free, free agents always the middle of the seesaw right to your point when you're talking about how the xenomorph is essentially languidly just watching ripley and sort of thinking how am i going to take this woman apart playing with your food if you will and you say you know we don't necessarily do that watch vintage footage of muhammad ali in the ring with somebody he knows he's better than and watch him just kind of wait and wave his hand at him saying come on come on or watch Michael Jordan in his prime going up against a defender he knows has no chance and the guy is backing away in fear and he's saying come on up come on it's your turn when I hear you talk about how the xenomorph is treating Ripley that way that's all I can see is that when we we have people that will do that in situations just where you know that you've already won it's just a matter of time I can patiently just pick apart this inferior creature I don't know that it's a question of morality or, or not I think it's just a question of straight animal behavior and everybody engages in it from time to time yeah that's a good point tom what do you think the same scene that i identified as being my moment of truth was the one that proved that the xenomorph was something more than just an animal to me i i think you know it showed a little bit of intelligence and you know that also scared the crap out of me too clearly it's it's not just a dumb animal and that scene like did it for me yeah. so i'm like okay now we have to start thinking of this thing as an intelligent thinking creature yeah yeah, you know, when we see the scene where it takes care of Lambert and Parker as well, you get the feeling that it's kind of enjoying itself there too. And, and I, I guess, you know, Joe's point is, is well made. I mean, that's the scene where like Lambert is so, so stock still. She's so just, she's checked out, right? <laughs> like she's just, you know, mentally she has collapsed and she's, she's no longer in the building. And the xenomorph knows it. It knows prey when it sees it. Yeah, the stuff of nightmares, truly. And there are so few other monsters I've ever seen in a horror movie that really kind of fall in the category so perfectly. Just is so, so beyond your capacity to, to contend with. There's just no way there's a fair playing field. The only way you can possibly prevail is by some incredible stroke of luck or just some little secret you have that the other thing isn't privy to like where the airlock button is yeah yeah <laughs> yeah yeah is it the best movie monster ever for me it's tied 
the the shark and Jaws. For me, Jaws and Alien are in their own way very very similar types of movies because they draw on a similar type of horror. Sure. Especially once they get out on the orca, it's this them in the shark's neighborhood, and they realize just how how out of the depth, no pun intended, they really are. But the shark is it's the kind of creature that reminds our human heroes that they're in fact still a food chain of some kind and we're not at the top of it. And that's a very sobering thought when you have a brain as big as ours to realize just, you know, where you fall in the place of things. And the shark in Jaws does that. But I think the xenomorph and alien does it even more so because you can't even tell where the xenomorph comes from. You know just enough about it to know how little you really know. And that makes it even more frightening. Where did it come from? What fiendish turn of evolution allowed for this it's built out of nightmares it really is it's just built out of nightmares and we have to give a nod to hr geiger who just oh yeah his creature design in this was so well done that it actually turned his name into an adjective i mean you say something is geiger-esque you immediately imagine the xenomorph or something like it that weird super creepy biomechanical look that no other movie has ever really fully managed to replicate and probably for the best, because Geiger stuff is so disturbing that I think if you saw it in lots of other places, it might lose some of its impact. If you guys have one that, that comes close to this, I'd love to hear it, because for me, it's kind of impossible to, to really put anything else right next to it. Are we talking about scary, or are we talking about cool, or are you talking about, you know what I mean? Like when you say like- I'm talking about scary. I'm, I'm talking about like a movie okay. monster that, that, that really makes you feel horrible, primal fear type thing, or just a monster that makes you don't want to see it. In almost all movies, when you finally get to see the creature, you're kind of let down by it. Like, like cause what you don't see works m- much more effectively than what you do see. And for a variety of reasons, we never fully get a really good look at the alien. You know, I mean, if you get a good look, it's very, very quick. The only one I think came close for me, and, and, and this may or may not resonate with anybody, there was a Mark Singer movie where they used to go into each other's minds, and now I'm, I'm bonking on the name of it, um, Dreamscape, I think it was called. Does, any, does that resonate with anybody? Yeah. Rings a bell. I, I, I remember Dreamscape with Dennis Quaid. Yeah, you could go into somebody else's dreams and they, used to, they were like assassinating world leaders or something by going into their dreams. And there was the bad guy in that who changed himself into this lizard reptilian thing. And I must have either been the right age or whatever it was that that to this day is like the scariest thing I've ever seen on celluloid. And I had nightmares for months about that. Yeah. Because <laughs> it never came out and tap danced for me. So it gives me <laughs> I think if you make any monster do the whole Michigan J Frog thing, it will forever remove part of its, its malice. Chris, Tom, are there any other monster movies for you that come even close to the Xenomorph? I mean, I, of course. I mean, if you're talking great movie monsters, you got to talk King Kong and Godzilla, mm-hmm. but that's different, yeah. right? We're not talking about that. Short answer, no. I mean, you could go with vampires as, as a category, maybe, but no. Yeah. What, what's really scarier than this? I, I guess the, the Nosferatu version, that, that's some scary stuff right there. That, that. Yeah, it was pretty tough yeah. frightening, yeah. but still. What else but still? come up oh, yeah. with out of like whole cloth that's, you know, that scary? Yeah. I mean, like vampires, you have legends to draw from, werewolves, all that stuff. What's been yeah. invented that, that's that scary? I mean, you really were on the mark when you said it's like the stuff of nightmares. I mean, come on, like acid blood and then tails that can impale people. I mean, like, come on. <laughs> it's like yeah. you couldn't invent a better monster. <laughs> the extendable jaws within jaws that seem to yeah. serve yeah. no purpose yeah. other than killing somebody in the most horrible manner possible. <laughs> but it's, but it's it, extracting. It gets, it gets the fear into the meat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Tastes so good when you do that. It was just biological enough to be believed. Like, yeah. you remember when they pulled that video out where they finally got a, a shot of the goblin shark? Yes. It's, yeah. It's circulating <laughs> online. Yes. Like, yes. Everybody's head went right to the xenomorph. They're like, that thing looks like the thing from Alien. Yeah. Yeah. That's how iconic that bit of it is. I mean. (laughs) 
you mentioned the um the mouth coming out of the mouth yeah. i think part of what makes it so terrifying is that it's invasive right it's, it's violates you it, it'll either kill you or it will violate you first yeah and then kill you it lays its eggs in you which will then hatch which is like everybody's nightmare right. to begin with is like something laid its <laughs> yeah. eggs in my ear you know like yeah. I mean, but like the sense that okay it's going to lay its eggs in you and then it's going to hatch through you and it's going to be horrible that way so i i think there's something about the sense that it's parasitical mm-hmm. even though it's it's yeah. an apex predator it's an apex predator that will uh use you first and there's something extra terrifying about that yeah for sure i mean not to put too fine a point on it the face hugger is a vagina that will rape you hey <laughs> and look, i mean, seriously look at the visual design yeah. it's a vagina that has yeah. a penis that comes yeah. out of it i mean and and it's going to impregnate you with that and there is a lot of psychosexual stuff going on there. You have experienced some scary-ass vaginas in your life. Well, well, that <laughs> don't take me there. <laughs> to be fair to Chris, though, seriously, like when you look at Geiger's work, though, there is this really bizarre, twisted sexual nature to a lot of his designs. In some of Geiger's earlier designs of the xenomorph itself, the tail ended in a penis. This notion of violation for Geiger was like, it's no straight sexual violation. And I think Ridley Scott wisely walked that back going, no, no, it's it's violation enough for you to have a parasite stuck down your throat to then grow within you and then destroy you from the from the inside. That's enough for me, thanks. Yeah, yeah, yeah you know. But look at Lambert's death scene. There is a, a rapey aspect to that. Quite. I don't think that that's a mistake. I mean, it's meant to be. It's, not. it's meant to be like I could kill you, but first I'm going to do even something more horrible to you. I think it's no joke. It chooses Lambert at the moment she collapses emotionally. She just can't defend itself. That that might actually refute my initial thing of is the xenomorph free of malice, you know, or does it have the ability to determine I can hurt you or I can hurt you more? The violation aspect of it that hits us where we live as as creatures beholden some kind of morality. You could also make the argument that this thing is sentient and that it actually treats women different than men. I mean you talk about how it waits to attack Lambert, it waits to attack Ripley and it doesn't wait with the others. I don't know if it has a concept of gender because of its experience with, with humanity or does it have an experience of humanity if we go far enough through the franchise right so i don't know what the answer to that is i do know that it's the late 70s and men and women are treated differently in film mm. yeah sure initially the initial scripts had her not even wearing what she wore she was she's naked in the original scripts yeah and which apparently sigourney weaver didn't have a problem with at all she's done interviews that said yeah why wouldn't i be naked for that scene so i do think that there's something to be said about the fact that we've identified both lambert and ripley as the victims that were treated differently than the others. Well, well, speaking of Lambert and Ripley, Joe, this brings us to your moment of truth. First of all, I love the fact, I love, I'm a, I'm a writer. I love naming conventions. And I love the fact that Nostromo is from a Joseph Conrad novel, right? I, I love the fact that Lambert, Brett, and Parker are all named after 1970s sports heroes um, of the guys who put the thing together. I'm always intrigued by stuff like that. I love the fact that Veronica Cartwright was originally supposed to be Ripley until the last moment. Yeah. And then they, they made a change. Early on in this, and this speaks to the issue of is it a horror movie and the beats that it hits that are horror. It's almost the equivalent of I've got a bad feeling about this. Somebody in the horror movie has to be the first one to say, this is bad. Let's get out of here. Let's not go into the haunted house. Let's not spend the night in the car. Let's not do whatever it is that risks the wrath of the thing up on high. And that's Lambert. Lambert in this one is the the character that tells us first that things aren't right, that tells us that I got a bad feeling about this and gives us the first off-ramp, right? And to me, the, the, one of the important beats of a horror film are these off-ramps that the characters ignore um, or choose to blow past. And she says that first moment when they're off the ship, she says, essentially, let's get the hell out of here. And if everybody just said, you know what, Lambert's right, let's pack up and, and make tracks, 
then everybody's okay. I love that, that moment of truth for me is we know hearing her say that and hearing everybody sort of, ah, whatever, just, just move on with it. We know we're in for it. We know that the, uh, the seatbelt is on and the car has gone off the top of the roller coaster and there's no turning back because we've had our warning. We've had the old man at the gas station who says, don't go up in the house there because bad things have happened. Yeah. And so the, the other off ramp that I love is when Kane is outside with the thing on his face. They're saying, we got to let him in. And Ripley is at the door saying, no, this is my call. Uh, and you know, I'm in command of the, the ship right now. And um, no, he doesn't come in. We got to follow protocols. We got to quarantine. We got to do all these things. And, and Ash just blithely overrides that and just and there's no argument there's no debate he just presses the button and and lets it in and and that's how we know that first of all that something's not right with ash but it's the last chance for the crew to get away if not clean to get away mostly clean and so as a as a writer and as a as a viewer i've always been a huge fan of what are our last chances to avoid the bad things i think what makes this a horror movie for me is watching those opportunities go past. My true moment of them is Lambert the first time, and she says it a couple of times actually, but the first time that she says, let's get out of here. And, and I'm with her. Uh, with Lambert, yeah, she's very clear. She's like, I don't like this. But they kind of established her early on as like the griper, as the warrior, and as timid, somebody, and, timid yeah. and, and somebody who the crew has all these other reasons to, dis, to, dis, to, to discount her, right? Yeah, and, and so even though she's right, even though she's smart, even though they should, they should listen to their better sense and get the heck out of there, they don't. And the story intentionally picks the one character who could be easily marginalized even when she's talking absolute sense. And part of it is this is late 70s, right? That's what you did with a lot of female characters. But I think they kind of played on that tendency for great dramatic effect with Ripley. It's like she was this great character. She's got real authority. She's smart and competent and she sees things for what they are. And she's not being inhuman. She's being a great risk manager. She's like, look, the protocol is clear. We can't let them on the ship. This is serious. Not only does Ash override her, but nobody else on the crew seems to have a problem that Ash overrode her. That, that's the thing that's, that's kind of amazing. Right. It's like, as it goes on, she's angry. She just sucks it up because she knows nobody's going to listen to her if she brings it up. She brings up to Dallas. Dallas is like, hey, and he's just like, get off my back. I can't handle this. He's a bad manager. You know, he's like, he doesn't want to hear it. <laughs> and, so, and, and so he just sort of swats it away. So Ripley's like, well, yeah, here I am again, you know, overwritten. I'm the smartest person in the room, but I don't get to be the one who makes the call. And I love how they add those things because when those things happen, those off-ramps happen, they give you reasons within the story for what happened, but we know bigger picture why why it matters. And it, it just, it doesn't feel like a mere artifice. It's like these are characters doing things to each other that kind of make the the smart thing not happen. And it's just great storytelling. Yes. Why don't we listen to the women? Why? <laughs> <laughs> If anybody had listened to Lambert or Ripley, and if you look at the entirety of the Alien saga, a massive cascade of disaster would have been avoided. In this, in this universe, it was so easy to override them. Right around the time this movie came out, the slasher genre was really starting to get rolling as well, but it really hit its stride big time, like the early 80s. That's when you had that last girl standing trope sort of emerge. Yeah. She, yeah, she's kind of the last girl standing, but she's also like the ignored sensible woman, which is which kind of a trope unto itself. And other stories just have the ignored sensible person, but she's Velma, right? And and but more often than not, it takes horror movies, which do so much to objectify female characters in, in general. You know, but who's the smartest one in the room? It's this woman over here who we're now going to all ignore. And there's this knowingness, like there's that marginalization just built into us as a society, as the crew of the Nostromo find out to you know to their dire detriment. So the company has put them in a place where they are given this overriding incentive to ignore their own best instincts, their own self-preservation, 
you know, all this sort of stuff, which I think brings us to Chris's moment of truth. So Chris, I think we need, I think we need to discuss the bonus situation. Before we dock, I think we ought to discuss the bonus situation. <laughs> <laughs> this is like the fourth line of dialogue in the movie, fourth or fifth. It's, I mean, it, it I, I was thinking about the movie, which I've seen goodness knows how many times after we decided on the topic last weekend. I just, I struck in this moment and I was like, you know what? These guys, the labor, the, the poor downtrodden, you know, nobodies on the ship are absolutely complicit in the economic situation that the company has set up. The second anything happens, they go straight to mercenary uh, motivations. And that's all the company is doing. It really changes the movie. I rewatched it a couple of days after I told Bill what my topic was going to be. And I am telling you, from the first scene of the movie until after Brett dies, those two guys, Brett and Parker, do nothing but obstruct their own survival. When they're trying to get off the planet, Brett's like, yeah, we could probably get out in 16 hours. And Parker just gets on the radio to Dallas and says, yeah, this could be at least 25 hours. They are submarining everybody. It's disgusting. But but so understandable <laughs> because, I mean, well, that's the society they live in. That is, yeah. that is what they're forced to. And uh, whether or not they have a real choice in that, who can say? But like you said earlier, Bill, there really aren't any – are many great people in this crew you know this is a, a universe where we can't expect to find many great people in a crew like this yeah, most of the dialogue in the beginning is telling you know like they're all telling you screw you i'm getting mine right. you know that's pretty much the message all the way through the the beginning you know through the dialogue absolutely and and, and look what the company is doing i mean they they sent Ash because they knew the signal was out there. So they're like, yeah, go get that 20 million tons of ore. We're going to route you back this way. They knew what they were doing. Yeah. But, but, you know, something I love about the moment of truth you pick, which, which specifically is that scene when Ripley goes down below decks to talk with Parker and, and Brett. And there's and they do this, they're plastic the steam, like, what? Can't hear you, Rip. What's that? They're What's just that? She's like, yeah, yeah, they're just being such <laughs> D-bags there, right? And she's just like, obviously a couple of grades about, you know, ahead of them. And they're like, they're trying at that moment to, you know, leverage for more money for this. They're already going to get a bonus, right? They're going to get a bonus on top of everything they've done. But they're like, you know, we need to get more. And she goes, you'll get what you've been contracted for. I'm like, yeah, but... Uh, Everybody gets more than us. On the one hand, you feel for them. And on the other hand, you're like, wait, 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 hold it. That was decided back at Doc, y'all. But then again, I'm reminded of, um, there's, a great, there's a great book I read some time ago called In the Heart of the Sea by Nathaniel Philbrick. And it's, it talks about the, the real life story of the whale ship Essex, which was stove in by a whale during a whaling mission and became the inspiration for Moby Dick. As you go into it, you get a sense of how the economics on these whale ships really worked. And everything was done on a shared basis, right? And so people came on board and they just got whittled down by the owners to, to, to do like two years of labor for just in a remarkably small portion of the, of the proceeds. But people were not in a position to understand what that really meant before they shipped out. It, just, it sounded good at dock and then they get out. And by the time they realize how much they've been screwed over, it's no, they're in the middle of the ocean. They can't turn back and renegotiate. They are, they are stuck. And I definitely got the feeling that that was sort of the same kind of deal, which is that these guys realize they are being completely hard done by and they want to try to renegotiate. There's no way for them to renegotiate. And they're just sort of venting, literally venting their anger at, at you know, at, at, at right. Ripley, you know? 
Um, the captain can't do it. Ripley can't do it. And I think deep down they kind of know it. They know they can't get more. And they're just like angry that they're in this position. They're two of my favorite characters of the whole thing. You know, Brett, because he's just, you know, right, right. No, what are you, a right. parrot? Right. Right. I, I was hoping you would say right. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Well, I think if I did, we were going to have to replay the entire scene. And I probably would have been the first guy to screw <laughs> up the line. So I don't want to, I, I couldn't go down that, that road. You know, but like Parker in particular is an, an interesting character because as the story progresses and as the situation gets more real and people got to stop acting like such jerks and like put their incentives aside and actually do what they can to survive, Parker becomes a lot more capable than we ever thought he was. And it's ultimately too little too late. Under different conditions, Parker would be a much better guy. It's just that in this scenario, on this ship, with this company, he's been ground down to a nub. As the gear tooth goes, he's pretty well-rounded, you know. He's also the black guy, Bill. I mean, late 70s. There, there is that. That no doubt matters. I no mean, doubt matters. Yes, no, no doubt matters. Those guys really do a lot to kind of push forth this notion of like, there are no good people on the, on the ship. But here's the other thing about it, though. And I'll just say this real quick and let you guys have a chance to speak. When you look at the Nostromo and you just see like the flaking paint on the doors and the grime in the corners, that sort of thing. And it looks like an actual workplace, right? It looks lived in, looks beaten up. Even though we never see a representative from the company, even mother isn't really. Mother's just pulses coming from home. You never see a manager giving them the business. It's so distant, but you can feel the guiding hand of the corporate offices back home. Oh, yeah. This is the first science fiction movie I ever saw where going to space was not a cool thing to do. This is the sort of thing where going to space was the kind of thing that you only did if you have no better option. It was where people who maybe weren't particularly skilled were just sort of sent off. It's where you were made to be disposable. We think of going to space as such an expensive thing. Only the best, brightest, most skilled, most back to even possibly get there, right? But in this universe where space is easy to go to, it becomes a junkyard for humans. And it's just where it's, it's a place where you just get worked over. And that was an astonishing thing for me as a storyline. And economic dynamics in the crew really bring that to light. You can make a, uh, an android that's you know capable of making you know complex moral choices but the go-to computer is like basically your atari 2600 like does not compute does not compute you know yeah. come on tell me like that that company wasn't just cutting corners at every opportunity uh, to make this thing the cheapest vessel that it possibly could be and you know i i love that like when i see that in a science fiction universe and i've told you guys this countless times that if you uh show me like the star wars universe universe i want to see a movie all about coruscant or you know i want yeah. to see about the guys who are running spicy i want to see the seedy underbelly of the science fiction universes and and alien delivers on that in spades you have to admit i mean uh you look at everything on that ship things are breaking down you have paint on the doors you know it just it looks like it's just been in service for a long time it looks like uh you know nobody's given it the tlc that it needs in order for it to do its missions it's like the merchant marine these aren't officers these are the the guys these are the able seamen if you will of the era who are you know they, they haul on ropes and they move that box and all this other sorts of stuff and they have their own culture and they have their own economy that's different from what we're so accustomed to we're so accustomed to captain picard walks in and he's got his ready room and his little gray tea but there's got to be guys down there that are coiling up cables and doing other stuff that make the enterprise go that we never hear about, right? So they're the guys, they're, you know, forget even the red shirts. These are the guys in the jumpsuits. And actually, the original Star Trek episodes from, you know, 1966, 67 had those guys walking around. The guy with a pipe that was walking into engineering in the, gray, in the, the tan uh, jumpsuit that, 
kind of doesn't even nod at the captain, knows he's not supposed to go near him. The, the Nostromo created so much of the, the visual field where, you know, the corners were cut when it was being outfitted and it's not the best ship. It's not brightly painted. And there are, there are things about it that break and go wrong, but they're, you know, not particularly invested in making it a comfortable or safe ride for people. They're just trying to watch out for the bottom dollar. And to, to Tom's point, that's a fascinating part of, of science fiction that we don't get to see a lot. Alien was really one of the first times I ever saw, like it just got away from the utopianism of, mm-hmm. of spacefaring science fiction for sure. You know, but it really also, it kind of got this industrial working class kind of sense of like, what does it really mean to have a job in space? You know, to have a job that sucks in space, to take all the things that make working for a living, not such a great thing and export it into a space thing. It really did that and did it very artfully and really wonderfully. To be fair, there may be some other science fiction movie that predated Alien by a year or so that maybe did this sort of thing that I'm just unaware of, but none of them did it as well as Alien. Alien just so hit the bullseye so masterfully. There are two great details with, with, with Dallas in particular that I loved. One was Dallas is running the ship, right? His only option for like an outside opinion without sacrificing his authority is going in and talking to mother. Him talking to mother for like life and death decisions, it was like trying to download a movie on a 2600 baud modem. The, the tech is not up to the task, you know, and there's a great scene where he just types, you know, what are my chances? Dude, you may as well be looking into a magic eight ball because you are not going to get the answer you're looking for from mother. But that's what the company equipped him with. You know, they're like, here, here's mother. It's the question Otron 9000 and it'll do nothing at all when it really matters. Alexa, how do I escape? Yeah, yeah, exactly, you know. It's like a Martian talking to a fungo. Sorry, I can't help with that right now. Yeah. <laughs> But the other, one of the other things about with Dallas that I just love, and it, and it kind of underscores again just the nature is, it, it's actually it's right before the chestburster scene. Everybody's just in a good mood; they're all happy. They're so relieved. Kane's okay. Like, oh, this is so great. And Dallas is like, hey, I tell you what, more, one more last meal before the freezer. You know, I'm buying. Right, I'm buying. This is typical parlance. Me, hey, let's go. But I think I think he really is buying. Like, I, I think like, so too. Like, I think Will and Tony straight up charging them for the food they eat when they're on that ship. Yes, <laughs> yes. You know, I mean, that's that's and and when you see the the, the meal. Like everything's out on the table. You get the feeling like, hell yeah, Cap's buying. Like I'm going to get the extra, you know, ramen noodles. And I'm going to get the extra stuff. And it's like this great little throwaway detail, but it says so much like, no, they're probably charging them because they know they can't go anywhere else for food. So why not take it out of their pay? You know, it's just a At the company commissary. Company store. Yep. But the thing I also love about these guys is like, honestly, I have met a Dallas, an Ash, a Ripley, a Lambert, a Parker, a Brett, at almost every job I've ever held. Um, they're kind of archetypes. And to be fair, I have probably been a few of those guys to the people I've worked with at some of those jobs as well. You know, There's just a veracity to how, how those guys are that really, it, it brings it all home, makes it matter. There's not just a this polemic about class struggle and that sort of thing. It's just, no, it's just, this is, work is work, man. <laughs> Sometimes you see that reinforced everywhere. You know, I think it probably says more about like crappy jobs than it does about space travel or, you know, yeah. <laughs> science fiction. I mean, look at how fed up he is when Ripley comes to him and he's just like, I don't want to hear any of this. Cr- how many bosses have you had that have been exactly like that guy? Yeah. You know, yeah. like, <laughs> it's like, I'm tired of this quick pro- quoting protocol at me. Like, I, I, I just don't want you to deal with this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Dallas is as far from like, Captain Kirk, he is just the guy running the truck. He's up for the captain's seat all the time. He's like, dude, I seriously do not want to hear it. And it does so much to sort of place where exactly he is and what kind of guy gets sent out into space to drive home a massive freighter with 20 million tons of unrefined ore, which as we learn later is worth a fair amount of dollars. They send a guy like Dallas to do it. Really? Somebody like Ripley 
who is whip smart, she's like two steps below. You know, she's like nowhere near command. <laughs> she's just she's just a technical officer, really. And that's as far as a smart person like that's going to get. And it just it tells you everything you need to know about what what kind of world they're in. Yeah, I mean, Dallas sends his his away team includes the captain and the XO. <laughs> What's that about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Apparently, he slept through the concentration of risk section in his risk management seminar. That's all I know. No, I just grew up watching Star Trek episodes where it was always Kirk and Spock going out on the thing. Yeah. Uh, just one and two. That's who goes out. I guess it took us to the next generation to figure out that you're not supposed to do that. You know? Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. I think Picard was just a yeah pansy. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. That, those are fighting words, but we'll save that for some other time. Um, and I can prove to you just how wrong you are. Anyway, before we wrap up, just a final thought. Alien is a movie that broke what people expected from both science fiction and horror at the same time. And while it was a huge success, it took nearly 10 years for somebody to follow it up with a proper sequel and one that was good enough on its own terms to sufficiently honor what preceded it. Uh, and, and like I said, we will talk about Aliens because Aliens is such a unique movie because it's a sequel that is as good as its predecessor, but on radically different terms. You know, Alien and Aliens are two very, very different movies somehow still connected, which is kind of an amazing thing about that movie. You know, one of the great things I'd like to leave us all with as we think about Alien and just the legacy of it is that is a story that is so well done. It's so well executed that it it didn't just set itself up for sequels. It was so rich that it gave us the opportunity for somebody to follow it with something as good as Aliens. We very rarely see sequels that live up to its predecessor in such rare and unique form. Any good sequel has its predecessor to thank for it, but the Alien and Alien situation is very special and very unique. And I think that Aliens is so good. So, so, so good. It could not have been that thing if not for Alien, if not for the richness that Alien brings. And I, I think that's what puts Alien in a very rarefied space. This is a movie I'll always enjoy watching till I am old and gray. I'll always keep turning this one on and, and enjoy it. And it's just, a, it's just a great thing. So Now I want to go watch Pitch Black. <laughs> Well, on that note, Chris, Joe, Top, thank you for dropping in today. It was great to have you on the show again. And uh, please don't forget, you're all guaranteed a share by contract. So <laughs> everyone, thanks for listening. And we just signed up for <laughs> Exactly. Just like everybody else. Everyone, thanks for listening. And we'll see you again here on Moments of Truth. Bye now. Moments of Truth is hosted by Bill Coffin, Chris Crenshaw, Tom Hespos, and Joe Pace. This podcast is edited by Derek Eisenhart. The Moments of Truth theme is a mashup of The Clermont by Flash Fluherty and a little help from a Texas Instruments Speak and Spell. For more Moments of Truth, be sure to subscribe to this show wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And for hundreds of additional write-ups of my favorite movies, please visit BillCoffin.com.